Father Edward Looney, as we continue our journey in this series, in particular in your lesson um, towards rediscovering just the Catholic sense of the sacred, not even Catholic, just the sense of the sacred and try to figure out what's going on. How do we get here? Um, how do we get here so fast? And how can we reorient ourselves in the world to the sense of the sacred, those gifts that God has given us? I know you've done a lot of work on Mariology. And so that's where I wanted to start um, this conversation. Just asking you, when you think of the sacred and you think of the Blessed Mother Mary, what are some some things that immediately come, immediately come to mind and, and what can you say about those? Yeah, you know, when it comes to Our Lady, uh, I have a great love for Our Lady of Lourdes. And it's a beautiful apparition, but if you think about it, here you have this literal garbage dump. And Our Lady came there, and she beautified this place that was a, a dumping ground. And so this grotto was formed. It, it was there, but everything around it was just trash, right? And so I, I think Our Lady has this uncanny ability to take something like that and to transform it. And the story of Lourdes is this beautiful story of uh, a young woman, a young girl, who receives this message that Mary is the tota pulpra est, the all-beautiful one, that she's the immaculate conception. And uh, so I, I think sometimes these places are like apparitions, are places where the sense of the sacred is very prevalent. And, and Our Lady always points us to the sacred. You know, she doesn't point to herself, but she points to her son, Jesus. She points to the sacraments. She wants a church to be built. And now, you know, in, in lots of these places, Lourdes, Fatima, etc., there are some pretty ugly modern churches that have been built. But the ones that had, the ones that really were built back in the day uh, are, are so beautiful. The basilicas, you know, Fatima, they have their they have theirs, and Lourdes has their, you know, modern one. But the the old one is is really the beautiful one, and the one that you want to go into. So, so I think through through these apparitions, through shrines, uh, we have a sense of the sacred with Our Lady. But also too the fact that she's been painted by so many people. So right behind me, this image of Our Lady. This is a Belgian image. Um, I, Boy, I want to think it's Jan Eck, but I could be wrong. And and so, um, but it's a Flemish painter, but he's captured the beauty of Our Lady. And so she's one of the most pictured people in art. Many artists have tried to, to depict her. Now go back to St. Bernadette. Go back to St. Bernadette and Our Lady of Lourdes. And she, she said that when someone tried to paint Our Lady, they never could capture the essence or the beauty of Our Lady. So, but artists have tried to do that for centuries. And if you go to the Washington Gallery of Art, for example, it's a very religious experience. Once you go into the medieval, the Renaissance type uh, artwork, because you have different depictions of Mary. And like, I just remember being at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. And I was thinking, I should be praying a rosary right now as I was going around looking at these different images uh, in the gallery because it was a very spiritual experience. So um, I think the sacred is all around us. We just need to open our eyes and we'll see 
kind of the beauty of our faith uh, surrounding us. Yeah. And when it comes to apparitions, I wanted to see if we could dig into that a little more, see if you can tell us more about this. That, um, So that's a beautiful um, teaching that you, you offer that the apparitions themselves, uh, where she appears, those are places of the sacred. They, they become that even trash dumps. You know, now they're hallowed ground. <laughs> that, that's fascinating. But what about what, what can we say about the time that the Blessed Mother Mary appears? I'm thinking about maybe Our Lady of uh, Kahibo, Our Lady um, in Rwanda, where the time that she appeared was on the precipice of something or um or our lady of, of fatima you know the, the time what can we say so the time that she appears is there something to say about when she appears and and also about sacred time yeah there's something to say about that because uh i'm gonna make a kind of an analogy to advent and, and in the sense that our lady is the perfect example of observing the season of advent because her whole life as a jewish woman was about waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And then as the angel announces, well, now she has nine more months. She knows, nobody else knows, but she has nine more months uh, of waiting. And then, you know, we enter into those last weeks with our season of Advent. And so um, Advent is a time of preparation for Christmas. Mary was preparing herself for for the birth of Christ. And, and I think when we, so this is the analogy, if we go to the apparitions, it's almost as if she gave us this anticipation period that she said, you know, in Fatima, well, pray the rosary every day to avert war for peace in the world. So it was like, I'm preparing you so that war doesn't have to be the solution. Your prayers can avert war. Or in Cabejo with the prophetic elements there that she said that um, a river of blood would flow through the country. And so she came kind of in this anticipatory moment to say, convert your hearts, change your lives so that, uh, so that this doesn't have to happen. You know, and even Our Lady of Good Success, uh, we, you, you and I spoke about that uh, in, in a different media event, but uh, Our Lady of Good Success, the fact that this, the Virgin is speaking centuries before and now we open up and we read what she said and we're like that's today so she appeared then to tell us to change so that what could happen wouldn't happen but we don't listen that well and uh and so kind of sometimes we want to dismiss these things and when we hear these messages well it means i have to change my life you know so so there's this alleged marian apparition and this alleged Marian apparition says you should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, now, if I was a proponent of that Marian apparition, I would be fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. And so if it's a true apparition, I'm not sure if it is. And so, but, but I personally haven't taken to heart that message in that alleged apparition. And so, so sometimes we, we don't take seriously enough these calls. And so in our time, thinking about, something like that or any other apparition for that matter but like we can kind of understand well okay those people didn't pray the rosary they you know whatever and and it kind of makes sense because that's the way the world goes a lot of ink has been spilled i think well maybe not enough as well well 
about um, St. Joseph and his relationship with the Blessed Mother Mary, the dream he receives, how he protects her. He's a, he's a true man. He's even, he's masculine in, in his manhood. He has a, a, a true sense of protection. He wants to um, cleave to her and, you know, put him, put her behind him in the sense of, you know, I'm going to protect my family at, at all costs. So I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time considering St. Joseph and his relationship in the Holy Family to um, Jesus and Mary. But when it comes to the sacredness of um, their marriage and their relationship, what can we say about the Blessed Mother Mary, about how she interacted with with Joseph? Scripture doesn't say, I guess, maybe a whole lot there, but what are, what are some, of, some of your thoughts when it comes to that? With Our Lady and St. Joseph, of course, they enjoyed this uh, virginal marriage. Mary kind of attests to it at the Annunciation. And then, uh, so the interaction of the two. So, you know, there's been a lot of people that have wondered certain questions. For example, did St. Joseph go with Our Lady uh, for the visitation? Did she? Did he travel with her? And then did he go back? And then did he go back and pick her up or whatever? You know, at what point does he realize that she's with child and wants to divorce her quietly, as St. Matthew says? Um, so you wonder about those dialogues, right, in the stage before Christ is born. But but as a holy family coming together and, and caring for the Christ child and having Christ really care for them, if you will, too, but uh, that they would have enjoyed this, this holy family life and... Uh, seeking and doing the will of God, that that was really the intention of Joseph. And and uh, so they really did seek the sacred themselves. Yeah. And I ask you that, just a, a point that you made earlier about um, art and how art uses imagination, um, which is a gift from God, um, probably used imagination to capture a sense of the sacred. I, mean, I, thought, I thought that was really beautiful because I think that's what art does really when it when it's really trying to capture what God has created, you know, Nate, even with nature, artists painting flowers and, and whatever. So the artists use their imagination to capture that, that sense of the sacred. And I was thinking about how we've used our imagination to like imagine a Holy family or even imagine Christ. What was Jesus doing during those years between his, um, his present presentation to the temple. And, you know, when he comes out to his ministry, we use our imagination there, but also, um, I noticed that you review film and um, on, your, um, on your YouTube channel. And so I wanted to transition there for a moment as we explore this, like how does how does imagination capture this, this sense of the sacred? And I was thinking of a recent movie, well, I don't know when your student is listening to this, it could be years from now, but um, context of recent now at the time of this recording of your class, that... Um, I was watching a movie called Barbie and, and something happens in Barbie where it's not like the original sin, you know, it's not anything like that, but there's some sort of discovery there that what's going on in Barbie land isn't real. And so they have to figure out a way to discover the real. So they go on this journey to discover the truth, something we've seen in countless movies over time. It's just, it's just a, a, a common feature, this discovery, this journey of truth. Um, where you have to rediscover yourself. You know, you have to go into this, like this hero's journey type of thing. 
Um, and that's really how the movie begins. And, you know, there's some disappointing parts of it, like when Ken goes out into the world and he discovers a book on patriarchy and he tries to bring that back into Barbie land and try to teach men how to be men. And I was so disappointed when this happened, Father Looney, because I was like, man, why didn't Ken find the Bible? Why did it have to be the book on patriarchy? He could have brought the scriptures back, right? But it's always, it's, so it's, it's, it's this, so through this, Ken discovers himself, discovers he's like this real man. So there's a lot of truth in here. Um, and so what I, I was just wondering, since you do this, um, since you've been on this journey for a while of, of explaining this and reviewing these things, what are some common themes in the film, past, present, that you, you, you'll say that you've noticed in how writers and um, directors are trying to discover the sense of the sacred through their imagination? So sometimes in film, there is kind of this curiosity and uh, I, I think the videographers, the producers, directors, whatever, like there will be fleeting religious scenes. Even, you know, watch your favorite television show uh, when there isn't a writer's strike. And and uh, there will be an image of Our Lady or whatever uh, that you'll see it sometimes. If you keep your eyes open, you'll see the sacred in these things. And, and I, you know, I always love seeing a picture of Mary, you know, in a secular TV show. And uh, so they'll do these pans and these shots uh, of the sacred. And somehow that's incorporated. Sometimes, though, the way that Hollywood portrays this stuff, not the best. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I was just super frustrated by the way that priests were being portrayed in film. And so Father Stu, like, I thought it was a good movie. I know some people were upset about the language and whatnot, but if you think about other films right around that time, other shows, um, boy, I, I can't remember the name of this one show, but it was like the vampire priest and he was going around and it was multi-episodic. And so, but it, it was just a terrible portrayal of a priest. And, uh, and then there was this other one. It was uh, on Netflix. I, I can't remember again the name, but it was about like this guy was going through old audio tapes and, and wanting to process it and to for a podcast or whatever. But in the end, you know, finds out all these things. And one of them, again, was a terrible portrayal of a priest. So, so you have that. Um, what I see and kind of what you mentioned with, with Barbie, uh, and I haven't seen Barbie, but uh, you do see that search. The search is a common, common theme, common expression. Um, so, for example, there was this, uh, yeah, just as you search, there, there's this movie on Netflix, uh, just a stupid movie. I watched it. I thought maybe it could be a piece to write about divorce or something. So kind of always watching a movie with a purpose to write a review. And it was called Happiness for Beginners. It was based on a novel, whatever. And as I watched it, you know, it's about this divorcee and she goes on this hike and she goes into this journey and, you know, it's this self-discovery for her. And, but I'm like, well, I know this is a secular context, but if you look at it with the eyes of faith, you could say this happens all the time. You know, this happens when when you go to a monastery, when you go and you pray that that maybe you do a three day retreat, 
you do something and you find God and it changes your life. And, and that's how we find happiness in the, in the spiritual sense. So there is that, that search. That's a common thing. But even too, I think sometimes you can look at a movie and you can maybe apply like a, a parable or something from the scriptures. So there's this, there's this movie. So we're kind of talking about movies we just saw, like you saw Barbie. There's this movie called Dreamin' Wild. And um, it, it's new. It just came out. Uh, it was in a few film festivals last year, but now it's on. Uh, it's been in the theaters, so I'm sure there'll be production and it'll be streaming or whatever. But this movie, Dreamin' Wild, is about uh, about two boys who grow up. They become adults, but they were... Uh, they. They were musicians, and when they were boys, they uh, recorded an album together. And so that album, of course, got sent off maybe to places, didn't get accepted. But then, um, but then 20, 30 years later, a company finds that album from their youth, finds them, and asks them, can we release this? And so it's the story about these Emerson brothers and how they went from being nobody as musicians to being somebody and being featured on the front page of the New York Times and kind of this crazy story. But so there's two things that you could look at that movie as a, a per, as a Catholic. You could be like, wow, the sense of something being rediscovered. Well, that happened with the work called The True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort. The fact that that work written in the 1700s was lost, it was in the attic of some convent, was discovered in like 1852 or something like that. Don't, fa don't fact check me on that year because it's wrong. But in the 1800s, they, they discover it, they publish it, it becomes the, one of the spiritual classics of our time. Well, to me, I immediately thought of that. And because I have that sense, I'm trained to think with uh, the spiritual mind. But then as I watch this story, it's a story of two brothers and their father. Well, doesn't that sound like a parable of Jesus? The, the good, the, the prodigal son oh, and the provident father, as, Car as uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict said. But um, so you have the prodigal son. Well, that's the son that wants to go off. He goes off wants to have his career. His father sells a lot of his farm. You have the other son who's probably a little envious. The father didn't really do much for him. He's just lived there on the family homestead all his life. And so there's a little jealousy. Then you have the father who's always encouraging. And, and, and so I thought it was a cinematic icon of the prodigal son, <laughs> you know, like, but um, yeah. So, so if we have this mindset of, how can my faith look at something? Now, I wrote a review for a movie called 13 Lives. I submitted it somewhere and they turned it down. They told me they didn't, they, 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 they did not like the approach I did, but it was a movie about, I think it was in India maybe, or no, well, it was wherever these miners were trapped and they had to do this water rescue and it was an oriental country. And so they, they had these false gods that they worshiped. They had like a shrine to a false god. They you know, all of these different things that they did during that process. But if if you look at it, you could extrapolate, well, this is what their culture did, and this is what it translates into my faith and my tradition. And so so um, I, I think that you can look at these things and you can see faith and 
you can recover a sense of the sacred. And, and that's what film, I think, is supposed to do. It's supposed to be evocative. It's supposed to make you think about these things so that you can uh, process it and maybe come to new realizations about yourself. Well, I do a lot of interviews with these people and uh, with, with different characters or producers. I always ask them, what's the one thing that you want people to take away from when they watch this film? Because what I take away and what I write my review on might be completely different than what they think. So, um, but, but there's always a takeaway and that takeaway stays with us for the rest of our life. I was wondering if you can answer one question I have about this. It's, it didn't used to be so obscure. Even when I wasn't a Catholic, I was um, quite a, well aware that the churches they were showing in movies, whether it's like the, the Godfather, you know, especially something Italian, um, or, or a movie about an exorcist. It was always something, it, it was always featuring this church, this religion I really didn't know much about. It was always these, these, these Catholics, it was always these priests. And so it didn't used to be so obscure that this is where Hollywood would go if they wanted to depict exorcism or depict religion. It was something so obvious as a Catholic church, maybe because it was always uh, the older traditional Latin mass, you know, it always had these, these trappings of, okay, everyone knows this is church, right? But then now I, I notice it, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to see what's going on. I'm thinking of two things. One, I see uh, a lot more Sometimes it is the Protestant church they they feature, um, and so that that's that's interesting. They they seem to have moved away from, you know, the the, the um, Catholic church for some whatever reason. And then I look at movies on Netflix, such as uh, there's a movie called The Warrior Nun, which they always start off kind of hopeful, like, oh, this is interesting. There's these nuns who fight battles at night against. <laughs> evil spirits you know like oh they're like ninjas that's fascinating and then it goes gay next you know next season like okay why did nuns become lesbians that's weird and so and so hollywood seems to one they don't gravitate as much anymore to the catholic church and two when they do it always it's always distorted like you said these depictions of priests that yeah that's not that's not really tight so why why do you think this happens, Father um, Looney? Well, I think secularism has taken over, taken root. So, um, you know, every TV show these days have their classic, this is a, a transgender person, or this is, you know, someone that's questioning, or this is the homosexual couple, whatever. So so there's always the, this insertion of, of and, and I think it's to try to change our minds, to... This is so widely accepted. Why are you so close-minded? That could be. So I think it's easy to attack the faith. You know, Bishop Barron, he always says that, that Catholicism is the only acceptable prejudice still today. You know, like it's very easy to attack Catholics and to attack faith and doctrine. You know, the L.A. Dodgers and what happened there, that's, that's his example of always accepted. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you have to be weary uh, of these things. But, you know, as society goes away from God, 
Well, I guess it's natural that godlessness would enter into to film and enter into television and whatnot. And so it will only be God coming back and making a, a triumphal entry, not in the second coming, but just, you know, a resurgence of faith that will change this, I think. And and there are lots of good filmmakers out there right now who are making um, uplifting, faith-filled movies. Lightworkers is a good organization that Roma Downey founded. They're making great stuff. Like uh, on Easter Sunday, they released a movie called On a Wing and a Prayer. And it was a true story about, I think his name was Doug White, that he was a passenger in a very small plane, you know, kind of like one of those five-seater planes. The the pilot has a heart attack. He had to commandeer and land the plane. And so it's like the story of that. But but how faith uh, interacted there. And so uh, there are people making faith-based movies and, and with that theme in there. And, and I do see this because I, I do a lot of work reviewing film. What I do see too is a lot of like, a lot of secular films want us actually they they contract these companies that then reach out to people like me and and others to say can you watch this movie and somehow tie it to a faith audience and uh, and that's what we do and so so th- they kind of understand what we're talking about right now yeah i had a personal question i was just curious it it, it, it could relate to uh, what we're doing here in in your class um, because I'm sure there's some sort of sense of the sacred there. I was wondering just, just personally, like what movie made like a profound impact on your life? You know, for me, it was, you know, it wasn't a movie, I suppose. Later it became a movie, but first it was a book. It was a, Alex Haley's um, Malcolm X autobiography. And uh, I, his first autobiography I ever read, I was just fascinated about this guy. You know, I never became a nation Islam person, but I just, wow, this his life completely turned around through some sort of encounter. And it, was, it, just, it just, it just moved me. And I, I never ate pork after that. And I just, Oh, he stopped eating pork. I can stop eating pork. And I don't know why I picked that. I, you know, like I said, I could have become a Muslim, but no, I just stopped eating pork, <laughs> but it's all 17. Then. But what, what would you say? What, what movie was it that kind of made like an impact on your life? Right, that's that's a great question. I, I actually don't know the answer to that question, um, just because I watch so much film, I guess. And and of course, I'm always watching these new releases and whatnot. Uh, but but I'll answer it. The one that immediately came to mind. It wasn't a profound thing, but it kind of set me on this trajectory of of loving film. And uh, and it was a, a movie that I don't think was very popular. But I saw it in theaters, and I went back and I saw it a second time, I think. And, uh, and it was actually when I was in the seminary. And uh, the priest, the pastor, he went to see it. He was so moved by it that he wanted me to go see it, you know? And, uh, and it was called Oz the Great and Powerful. And uh, so, so it sounds stupid, but the reason why I cite this, and it's so funny because I've written, I have a log, I forget how many, you know, I've written over a hundred movie reviews or something like that. And uh, Oz the Great and Powerful was the very first movie that I ever wrote a review for. And, um, and it was because I was so struck that I'm like, is nobody else seeing what I'm seeing here? I, I, I distinctly remember from that film that, you know, 
again, I, I don't remember all the characters. I know it's the Wizard of Oz story, but, you know, they go and there's this little girl and she can't get up or something like that. And all I could think of was telethikum, you know, rise, get up, or whatever Jesus said to the to the girl, telethikum. And it was just so vivid to me. And, um, and even another one that I really loved, and again, it didn't, like people critiqued it a lot, but it was the Wonder Woman that came out maybe, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago now. Um, I'd have to go back, but I wrote an I wrote an essay called Our Lady, the Real Wonder Woman. But boy, I don't know how you could be a Marian theologian and not sit there watching this on the screen. And as they're bringing Wonder Girl, Wonder, you know, as a little girl and bringing her up these, these steps, how you couldn't picture the image of Our Lady being brought into the temple. And, uh, you know, so so there are, if you know the sacred, I think you'll see it in film. Yeah. It was so amazing when, when I became a Catholic. First Catholic movie I watched as a Catholic was The Song of Bernadette, right? And, um, and I think it almost moved me to tears. I was just like, wow, I can't believe I've been missing this faith all my life. And then I finally get a chance to go to Lourdes and, you know, walk inside a grotto. And it was just, it was, it was just surreal. If you're talking about movies, like for me, I loved uh, that Bing Crosby movie, The Bells of St. Mary's. And uh, I can't tell you how many penitents in the confessional, how many homilies I've preached where I've used this line from that movie. But at the very end of the film, Sister, I don't know what her name was, Sister Mary David or whatever, Sister Mary goes into the chapel. Now she has tuberculosis. She's being sent away. And she thinks Father O'Malley, because he hates her, is sending her away, but it's really out of love and concern that they're sending her away. And, um, and she goes before the tabernacle in the church, and she says, Lord, remove any anger or bitterness from my heart. And so often, if someone comes to the confessional, I say, well, you just have to ask the Lord to do this. And, and then I always tell them, in this movie, you know, uh, the bells of St. Mary's, you know, Lord, remove any anger and bitterness from my heart. And uh, it's a beautiful prayer. And so uh, I love the song of Burnett too. I love, uh, I love uh, the bells of St. Mary. It's always a movie I watch every year around Christmas. So do you think I got just two more questions as we wrap up your, your catechesis and instruction here on the, on the sacred. Um, the first would be, uh, we've been talking about, film for a while um and you you mentioned how more and more they seem to be leaning into secularism you know and trying to change our mind as you said is there anything else would you say is going on in there that's that maybe people who aren't very mature and grounded in their faith should avoid some films or or what, what, what would you say there like how's it is it dangerous in, in a sense or what would you say sometimes i'm hesitant about what i write about you know just because because there there was one very popular priest who said i can't believe there are priests going and seeing barbie you know like we need more manly men priests is what he said and you know, I'm like, well, I have no interest in seeing Barbie. I'm not commentating on this. 
you know, and then you have people like Bishop Barron. He wrote this marvelous essay. Now I haven't seen it, Oppenheimer, but but he wrote this marvelous essay on Oppenheimer, and then you just get people attacking him and saying like, "Well, how much money are you going to make off of this? And do you ever have time to pastor your people and all this stuff?" You know, so so like, um, yeah, it's just uh, it's interesting the kind of the reactions that people have to clergy and film and whatnot. Um, I think that there there would be some films that you should stay away from. You know, I think anything, of course, that is diabolical or something like that. Exorcism movies are interesting. I, I think that, you know, I, I remember in my youth watching The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And and for me, that wasn't a movie to like scare me, to scare me or whatever. But to me, it was an exercise of if evil is real, then God must exist. So, but you know, if there was a movie that had a Ouija board in it, I would definitely like walk out even the very presence on film and being there. I, I, I don't know. I would, I'd be concerned about that. So um, I think sometimes we can become too scrupulous that because um, uh, I, you, you know, again, watching some of the comments on social media, you know, if you watch this movie, you've committed a sin. And all because of one scene, you know? And so I think it's a very judgmental statement. Like, you know, it's, there's that parable, I think, you know, it's not in the scriptures, but it's kind of one of these proverbs that, you know, you had a priest and a bishop and they were outside and there was this, you know, this hooker or whatever. And so one of them was, was lusting after her. And the other one was like wanting to care for her soul. And so you have the two dimensions there. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, anything with with excessive sexual scenes and whatnot should probably be avoided. I would say that for sure. But uh, I I think you'll know when you should turn something off. There was a show, and, and uh, admittedly, I did finish it, but I finished it like over five years because every time I would turn it on, like it would prick my conscience. It, and it was Dexter. So I don't know, like Dexter is the serial killer show where serial killer killing serial killers. And there was just something about it that was so dark that every time I watch it, I'm like, this feels sinful. Like, like I had that sense. And, but I, I'm a guy that wants to know how the story ends, you know? And so like every now and again, I would watch an episode or two and I'd be like, okay, I, I think I can do this or whatever. But, but yeah, just be mindful. And if it, if there's some sort of internal disturbance, then obviously your conscience is speaking and, and you should, you should turn it off. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. As we as we pursue the sacred, um, as we continue our pilgrimage on, on a narrow way, that, that that makes sense to avoid things like that. I think I feel the same way about when I see Ouija boards in the movies. I didn't notice it until you just said that. I think that's what it is. Is like this like it's, it's this weird thing that like goes off of me. Like this, I don't I don't like that because um, it's, it's normalizing something that should never be normalized. That's just which is weird, especially in kids' movies. But this is my final question that I wanted to ask you, because you're, um, of all the things that you do um, for us in, in service to God, you know, the one thing that you do, you're, you're a parish pastor. You're actually with the people. You're, you're, you're close to them in that, in that sense. And, you know, you, you do hear confessions. You do offer mass, adoration everything um so since you're close to the people and 
I didn't really notice this until I moved to Germany and I became more active in like in a Norvis Ordo parish and you know, I encounter people who are more holy than me all the time, you know, um, pray the rosary a lot more than I do. And it's just, you know, I, I have a different impression of, of people now. Um, in, the, in the same way, what do you, since you're close to the people and you encounter them every day intimately, I was wondering, where are people at in the world today? And just just in general, things, things you've noticed, is, is there... The, the the people who just come to mass on Sundays, not your not your daily dailies, but the people who come to mass on, on Sundays, where are, are they at in the sense of the sacred? And um, what more can we do on the, like on the parish level to um, just bring that closer to them? Just make it more aware to them that that direction where we ought to be headed. I think the people really do appreciate reverent liturgies. They know, like they know when they've experienced something wholesome and beautiful, they know, like I know of a priest that's a very gimmicky priest. Like every homily has to have a prop and like, I don't think they're being spiritually fed. And so people know that they're, they're not dumb. Like I, I always compared it to, you know, you can eat, white castle hamburger sliders or you could have a t-bone steak and so maybe you know one type of liturgy or experience of preaching is offering sliders and the other is offering uh steak and so um they people don't want sliders unless they have like a craving or they want an appetizer what they do want they they do want the steak who doesn't love a steak dinner and so uh i think we just have to offer that you know another thing that i realized is that People are, people hunger, you know, to keep going with this food analogy, I guess, but people have this hunger and, you know, people need, I sense that, uh, especially, um, well, uh, especially in the parish I serve, I know that they've been neglected in terms of a shepherd. And so I know that even though I'm here doing this right now, that my principal responsibility is to care for these people. And then the interviews and the things I do, I do that in my leisure time. Like a lot of times for my podcast, I'll do that just during my lunch hour or, you know, before, uh, uh, before I go into the office. So, so I make the parish, my principal, my principal duty. So, uh, but people, I know they want to be led. They want to be, they, they want to know their priests. They want to be, they, yeah, they just want to have a spiritual father. That, that's what I realize. And, uh, and so that's my sense. And, and I think that comes maybe a, a lot of times we talk about abandonment of our own fathers or for some father wound that we might have. And uh, so so out of that experience, well, now they, they don't want to feel abandoned by their spiritual father. They don't want to be wounded by their spiritual father. So there is, um, there is that fatherhood that they need too. That's a sense that I've got. But but people, people know, like they know when they need to go, or at least in the parishes I've served, a lot of people know, I need to go to confession. I haven't been in a long time. And, and so they do, they, they call me up or if they're homebound, they call me to visit them or they, I, I haven't heard so many confessions in a confession line than in my new assignment, you know? So, so I think that's good. I think there is this awakening and realization of 
God in everybody's life. Father Edward Looney, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on the return to the sacred. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you.